The word will be to you here a little, there a little, line upon line. And that's what we're doing in Hebrews. Here a little, one increment. There a little, another increment. We happen to be on the 39th increment of Hebrews 2020, a series entitled We See Jesus. And within that series, we have a series called the Corona Series, and I believe this is the 28th increment of that series. Now, as I've introduced before, there will be two guest speakers coming up, and we use that term advisedly because they are pastors in our who meet in our assembly, co-laborers together with us, and they will be speaking here, and Jim will be faithfully recording their messages, and you'll be able to find these on the tetelestai.org website, thanks to Jeremy Key, our faithful web creator and sustainer. And you'll find it under the choice of series under media. And there will be a new guest speaker category. So Pastor Craig Brown and Pastor Brian Messick will be recording messages to each and they will be up on that category on the website. I hope you'll look for them. I hope you'll take advantage of their sound doctrinal teaching and their sound exhortation. So, Father, we thank you again for another opportunity for the word to travel forth. And may this increment travel forth with power, with clarity, with conviction, and most of all, in the Holy Spirit, according to First. Thessalonians 1.5, thank you, and I entrust my spirit to you as I entrust the spirit of all our listeners to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. The next paragraph of this homily that we call Hebrews, coming right after the first paranetic paragraph, that's a technical term for a paragraph of exhortation or encouragement, impartation of incentive. After that paranetic paragraph, Hebrews 2, 1 to 4, comes 2, 5 through 9. In this paragraph, the PT holds forth what we're calling the eschatological orientation that he carries throughout this treatise. Hebrews holds forth an increasingly obvious eschatological orientation. He begins this expositional paragraph with, quote, for you see, it is not to angels that God subjected the future world about which we are speaking. He follows up by introducing and then quoting a passage from Psalm 8, in which he adds, Anthropology, that's a category of theology. Anthropology, the study of man. He adds that to Christology, another category of theology. And to angelology, another category of theology, the study of angels. Christology 
the most important, is the study of Christ. Then the writer deftly shifts the weight of this homily, not to angels, but to man. From angelology, we could say, if we wanted to be theological about it, to anthropology. Well, at the same time, the stress falls on Christology, or the Son, Christ, most of all. The focus remains upon the Son throughout Hebrews, as it remains upon God's Son throughout the New Testament. So up to now, the Son who is called the Son, God speaking in a Son in Hebrews 1-2, will be called the Son of Man from Psalm 8. He will be identified with one called the Son of Man, but also with man or humanity, all human beings. So the one whom the PT has already introduced as the Son in whom God spoke with finality in these last days... Hebrews 1-2, is about to be identified with the Son of Man, about whom God is concerned, and with man, or humankind in general, of whom God is said to be mindful. We have already seen the skillful handling of the Psalms by the author of Hebrews, his brilliant handling of it, and we've only really taken a glance at it in Hebrews 1-5 through 14. He unmistakably reads the Psalms, as Jesus did, in the light of Christ, and he unashamedly grants to them a Christological interpretation. It is sometimes assumed that this writer is not interested in anything but the section of the Psalm that he quotes. In other words, if he quotes a part of a Psalm, or a couple verses from a psalm, that's all he's interested in. He's not interested in the wider context. Well, I think we've demonstrated that the contrary is true. In fact, as we've seen with other references to the psalms, he is interested, and it's shown to be so, in the whole of the psalm that he quotes from. In this case, we'll see that Psalm 8 is in view. Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6 in most translations, is in the Septuagint or the Greek text, Psalm 8, 5 through 7. It's quoted, I would argue, verbatim from the Greek text of the Old Testament in Hebrews 2, 6b through 8a. So Psalm 8, 4 to 6, Greek text 8, 5 to 7, quoted verbatim, Hebrews 2, 6a, 6b make that, to 8a. And as we've seen with other references to the Psalms, he's interested in the whole Psalm in which the quotation is found. Now, specifically in this passage, this can be discovered, first of all, by the way he introduces the quotation, he says this, now somewhere, someone solemnly testifies. This is a 
kind of device used by teachers who expect their students to know what the somewhere is or where the somewhere is and who the someone is. And we hear this oftentimes by people who don't know the Bible. Well, somewhere in the Bible it says, and they'll usually say something like, the Lord works in mysterious ways. Sometimes I think that's all Hollywood knows about the scriptures, and it's not a scriptural quotation. And you see it in the movies all the time, and you hear this over and over again, this ad nauseum. Well, you know, the Lord works in mysterious ways. It says somewhere. It doesn't say it in the Bible. Or the Lord helps them who helps themselves, says someone, authoritatively quoting the Bible, but it's not in the Bible. Somebody somewhere. Well, somewhere in the Bible it says, that's not a very good argument for your case. But in this case, he's saying somewhere, somebody, with the intention that his readers or hearers will know that he's talking about somewhere, where the somewhere is in the scripture, and who the someone is who is speaking. So now somewhere, someone, and I think maybe he's even being slightly ironic here when he says, because again, people who argue against the gospel or argue against the grace of God or argue against the universal impact of the cross of Christ will say, well, you know, somewhere in the Bible it says. Now somewhere, someone solemnly testifies, he says, saying, and so already our attention is drawn to the somewhere and the someone. We discover that the somewhere is Psalm 8. Now that's easy for most of us because we have an English Bible, an English translation or an American translation of the Bible. There's usually some kind of cross references or references on the side or the bottom of the page that say, Psalm 8. And so we know that our attention is drawn to Psalm 8 here. Specifically, in the Septuagint translation, that's Psalm 8, 5 through 7. In most, trans- most English translations, that again is Psalm 8, 4 through 6. But for the someone, we have to go back to verse 1 of Psalm 8. Now, this already demonstrates that the writer is interested in the whole of the psalm and not just the passage he quotes. Oh, he homes in on the passage he quotes as being most important for his argument. But he has selected this from this whole psalm for a reason. In Psalm 8, we have a very interesting phrase because it is introduced with the phrase, Aistotelos, E-I-S-T-O-T-E-L-O-S. And then the word, a psalm of David. Aistotelos, a psalm of David. Now, the New English translation of the Septuagint, which I find to be very excellent, it's N-E-T-S. I have it in our footnotes of our printed versions of this, translates this, the literal phrase, for the end, aistotelos, 
for the end. Now take that literally, for the end. This psalm is for the end. This psalm, in other words, is, has an application to the end, the eschaton, the end, the telos. It's references to an eschatological person and people, ultimately. So the NETS translates this literal phrase for the end, quote, regarding completion. We've already seen this before in Psalm 45, LXX 44, quoted in Hebrews 1, 8, and 9. Same beginning, same introduction, regarding completion or literally for the end. Now, and then a Psalm of David. We're getting close here to the someone. Fascinatingly, in the Septuagint translation, I was actually fascinated to discover this and only did yesterday or the day before. In the Septuagint translation or the Greek text of the Old Testament, this same beginning regarding completion or for the end is found in Psalm 4, 5, 6, 9, 10, 11, 12, Psalm 13, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 29, 30, 35, 38, and 39. 39, of course, is the, is the Psalm 40 in our English text quoted in Hebrews 10, 5 through 7. Also, Psalm 40, 41, 43, 44, 45, 46, 48, 50, 51, 52, 53, 54, 55, 56, all the way to 59, and then 60, 61, 63, 64, all the way to 69, 73, 74, 75, 76, 79, 80, 83, 84, 108, 138, and 139. 55 Psalms that I quoted or that I counted very quickly. It's probably not the exact number. But they all share this introduction, ice or ace ta telos, for the end or regarding completion. Psalms, 55 of them at least, concern the end. They have an eschatological orientation. So it's interesting that our writer would choose something that's introduced as for the end. That's there's no other phrase in anywhere that introduces an eschatological orientation better than that, more clearly than that, more succinctly than that. First, then let's notice some observations, three or four of them at least. First, for the end, estotelos, obviously invokes an eschatological orientation, a Focus on the end, the end of the day, as people quote so often today. That which is evident throughout the entirety of Hebrews is this eschatological orientation. Warnings are directed toward eschatology. Hope is directed toward an eschatological end. The eschatological end is soteriological. It's saving. It's Christological, it's theological. Indeed, there's no better phrase than 
aistotelos to indicate an eschatological orientation or focus. Hebrews in toto, the entirety of the book of Hebrews, we call it, the treatise we call Hebrews, the homily, the sermon, is an eschatologically leaning homily. Eschatologically leaning homily. On account of this alone, we can't say that the PT isn't interested in any other part of Psalm 8 other than the fragment of it that he actually quotes word for word in Hebrews 2, 6b to 8a. He's also interested in the whole orientation of the psalm, which is eschatological according to 8.1, because somewhere, someone has solemnly testified, not just testified, solemnly testified. A solemn testimony often goes along with an oath supporting it, as we find later on in Hebrews 6.15 to 18. And so, second, second observation about this. The translation regarding completion, which is another way to translate aistotelos, regarding completion, as the introduction to Psalm 8 is thematic, or it demonstrates a theme or a motif of Hebrews in toto, throughout Hebrews. It is, in one sense, all about the completion, totelos, of God's Son, or the perfection of his Son, in solidarity with all of humanity, and of the completion, or the perfection of all of humanity, in union with God's Son. Hebrews' exposition is also essentially about God's completion as a high priest. The completion of his qualifications, we could say, as a high priest through the age after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 5.6 from Psalm 110.4, which is LXX Psalm 109.4, and Genesis fourteen eighteen to twenty from Genesis fourteen eighteen to twenty and Psalm one ten four, the Hebrews writer does a magnificent homiletical midrash in the center section of Hebrews about the great high priesthood of Jesus Christ. The exhortation aspect of Hebrews is about the completion or the perfection of the readers or the hearers of this homily treatise. Hebrews 6.1 says, let us go on to completion. And a word there, teleoteta, is related to the word telos. It's in the same somantic domain. In fact, the very noun telos, T-E-L-O-S, in its various forms, appears in Hebrews 3.14, Hebrews 6.8, 6.11, and 7.3. The related noun, teleoteta, T-E-L-E-I-O-T, long E-T-A, you'll see this in print in our written version, is found in Hebrews 6.1, as we just saw and quoted. The allied verb, 
Teleao, T-E-L-E-I-O, Longo, Teleao, in its various forms appears also at significant points throughout the bulk of Hebrews. At 210, 5-9, 7-19, 7-28, 9-9, 10-1, 10-14, 11-40, and 12-23. There's a pretty hefty and wide-ranging distribution of that verb teleao. And that, too, is within that domain, too, and I wasn't going to mention this today, but it's worth at least noting. Within that domain is also the word tetelestai, not only in the name of our church, but also the word uttered by Jesus on the cross. Tetelestai. It is accomplished. It is finished. It is completed. Completed. The selection of Psalm 8 is as vital as the selection of the fragment of it that the author actually quotes verbatim. Okay, that's two observations we got now. Third observation, why the whole psalm is important. Psalm 8.3, which is LXX 8.4, with its reference to seeing the heavens as the works of the Lord's fingers, has a thematic connection. When I say thematic, I mean it has the same theme associated with it than it does in Psalm 102.25, the LXX 101.26 that was quoted in Hebrews 120 or 110. You see, there's an intricate web and network of verses here, just like Revelation. Revelation has very few direct quotations, but hundreds of allusions, probably over 700. We've seen that. And so the book of Revelation is an intricate weaving of Old Testament quotations or allusions. Hebrews carries that same weight in the sense that it's a phenomenally intricate interweaving of Old Testament texts. This in turn has a connection or a correlation to the Son by whom God created the universe. So we have Hebrews 1-2, back again, 1-2-B. Connected with Hebrews 1-10, the psalm is 102 or 101 in the LXX, connected to Hebrews 2-6 through 8, in which Psalm 8 is quoted. The intricate interweaving is fascinating. The divinity of the Son though the writer isn't really striving to make a case for it, the divinity of the Son is firmly established in Hebrews. Now, the humanity of the Son becomes the focus. The Son of God is the Son of Man. Think of that wonderful hymn, Fairest Lord Jesus, where he's called Son of God and Son of Man. The Son of God is the Son of Man, who is spoken of in Psalm 8.4, LXX 8.5. So there's three observations of why the PT is interested in the whole psalm from which he quotes a part. The fourth reason and the fourth observation about this, Psalm 8 closes 
with Psalm 8-9, which in the Septuagint is Psalm 8-10, in which we have this declaration of praise. Lord, our Lord, how wonderful is your name in all the earth. The name of the Lord is the name of the Son who has inherited a name infinitely superior to all the angels. Hebrews 1.4. The name of the Lord has yet to be spoken in the text of Hebrews, his very name. It will be enunciated with great emphasis at the close of this expositional paragraph, Hebrews 2.9. Wait for it. So much for the somewhere. Somewhere, someone has solemnly testified. So we've just shown four observations. So much for the somewhere, Psalm 8. Specifically Psalm 8, 4 through 6, LXX 8, 5 through 7. Now for the someone who has solemnly testified. The someone is David, Dawid in the Greek. As we discover in verse 1 of Psalm 8. But that's not the whole answer to the question of the identity of the someone. David, whose descendant is the Christ, has testified in this psalm. Just as Paul says that David speaks in Psalm 32, 1 through 2. LXX 31, 1 to 2. Paul cites that in Psalm, or rather in Romans, 4, 6 through 8. But we have to look deeper here. Near the end of his life, and I've referred to this probably hundreds of times over the course of my over four decades of teaching the word, because it's ever fascinating to me and always fresh and astonishing. David famously said at the end of his life, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me. Please notice that. Someone is David, but David said the spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. Second Samuel 23, two to one who has arguably been called to speak the word. I love this verse because I hope I can say at the end of my life, I mean, I could say a lot of things at the end of my life, but if I could say that, then there'd be nothing better than saying that. The spirit of the Lord spoke by me. Imagine that. What else could a man strive for in this life, but for the reward of saying that at the end of his life or a woman or any, any person. Here we enter the territory of pneumatology. That's P N E U M A pneuma. And then logos pneumatology pneumatology or pneumatology rather which is the theology of the holy spirit you see now we've gone from theology christology angelology anthropology eschatology pneumatology the theology of the holy spirit 
Jesus himself believed and even declared that David was inspired by the Spirit. So Jesus gave credence to David speaking by the Spirit. In a challenge to the Pharisees, last time we talked about his challenge to the Sadducees, this time we say when he challenged the Pharisees, he used the phrase David in spirit. The Greek is David en pneumati, pneumati, David in the spirit. Jesus used this in Matthew twenty-two forty-three, in connection with, and this is astonishing, in connection with Psalm 110.1, LXX 109.1, which is quoted in Hebrews 1.13 and 10.13, in prominent points in the, the epistle. The HCSB, Holman Christian Standard Bible, translation, it's my go-to English translation, with its notes, which I insert in brackets in this verse in these three verses 22 43 to 45 says this Jesus asked them or he asked them how is then how is it then that David inspired by the spirit and the CSB note has David in spirit how is it that David in spirit calls him Lord the Lord declared to my Lord Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Then Jesus reasons from that. If David calls him Lord, how then can the Messiah be his son? Well, we know that. He is the son of man and the son of God. The Messiah is the Lord God and he is man. In Hebrews 3, 7 even more tellingly for our case here, the PT attributes the lengthy quote of Psalm, again a Psalm, Psalm 95, 7 through 11, which again in the Greek text is 94, 7 through 11. He attributes that lengthy quote to the Holy Spirit. He begins Hebrews 3, 7 by exhorting this way. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, now that gives some weight to exhortation when the Holy Spirit is saying it, God is saying it, God the Spirit. In Hebrews 3 7, the writer doesn't say, as the psalmist says, even though that wouldn't be wrong either because the psalmist did say it. But he said, as the Holy Spirit says. In Hebrews 4 7, the PT does not say that today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. That's from Psalm 95, 7 to 8, or 94, 7 to 8. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. He doesn't say that that was said in or by David only. He does say it was said in David or by David, in David. And so what David says is what the Holy Spirit says in this case. Consequently, we can say that the solemn testimony of someone, Hebrews 2, 6, in Psalm 8, 4 to 6, 
LXX 85-7, is the solemn testimony of the Holy Spirit. We can also say that this solemn testimony was God speaking in the prophets. Hebrews 1.1, going all the back, way back there. Why? Because David, a king, also functioned as a prophet. And God, in times past, in many ways, spoke in the prophets. The somewhere, therefore, of Hebrews 2.6, is Psalm 8.5-7 of the Greek text. In the final analysis, the someone who solemnly testifies is the Holy Spirit. We're in the realm of pneumatology now. It's a solemn thing. And I say this solemnly. It is a solemn thing to listen and be attentive to the Holy Spirit. And it's a solemn and frightening thing to reject, neglect, or resist the solemn declarations of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews pneumatology, with its strong warning against refusal, is reminiscent, reminiscent of what I call the pneumatology of the book of Acts. Now, this is a very important way of interpreting and understanding Hebrews. Because the pneumatology of Hebrews is reminiscent of the pneumatology of the book of Acts with special reference to Stephen. Now, remember, Stephen was a Christian. He was a Jewish Christian. He was a Greek-speaking Jewish Christian just like the writer of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews wasn't Stephen. Stephen died a generation before this. But he had a lot of influence that was like the influence over Stephen. Stephen, whose name means crown or corona, Stephanos in the Greek, he was among seven Greek-speaking Jewish Christian men who were selected to be appointed to the duty of apportioning provisions to the Greek-speaking widows in post-Pentecost Jerusalem. When all the goods were sold or given away and laid at the apostles' feet and the people all began to live in a kind of communal setting, it says that the Greek-speaking widows seemed to be neglected in that, something about the language barrier. So the apostles said, hey, we got to give our attention completely to the ministry of the word and prayer. I can relate to that. And we have to select. So he, they say to the church in Jerusalem, select from among yourselves seven men, Greek speaking, Jewish Christians, who can attend to that responsibility. In the words of the apostles, they were to be, quote, men of good reputation, listen carefully, listen carefully. They were to be men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom whom we can appoint to this task. So they were apostolically appointed, but selected from among the Greek-speaking Jewish Christians in post-Pentecost Jerusalem, Acts 6.3. Now, along with Philip, 
Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon or Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, they, the members of the church in Jerusalem, chose Stephen, who again was called a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Notice the pneumatology of Acts, Acts 6 5. Of these seven deacons, diaconoi, we don't hear about five of them again, but we do hear about Philip, who was also an evangelist, as Acts 8 indicates throughout the book of Acts 8, chapter 8, and also 21 8, same Philip called an evangelist, also had four daughters who prophesied. And we also hear a lot more, obviously, about Stephen. Acts chapters 6 and 7, but also in Acts 8, 2, Acts eleven nineteen, and Acts twenty two twenty, Stephen is spoken of. In Acts 2, we're told that Stephen, after his martyrdom, was buried and deeply mourned. The death of Stephen set off some serious persecution. And we know that from Acts eleven nineteen. In Acts twenty twenty, Paul speaking to the risen Jesus whom he saw spoke of the blood of your witness, Stephen. Acts twenty two twenty. This finds resonance with the phrases, the blood of Jesus and the blood of Abel in Hebrews 10:19 and 12:24. Part of the blood groove of the sword of the word. Stephen is found right in that blood groove of the sword of the word of God. That's a pretty high honor. He was among the martyrs. He lived up to his name. He was also a faithful witness, which to Jesus means a whole lot. As he said, my faithful witness Antipas in Revelation 2.13. Stephen lived up to his name, Stephanos, crown in the English, corona in the Latin, Stephanos in Greek. Stephen will be awarded the corona of life. For enduring such testing in James 1.12. Now, Stephen was so mighty in the word and preaching of the word that some champion debaters from the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, in Acts 6.9, unsuccessfully debated with Stephen. Now, this is important because Stephen was a debater. He was a trained orator and debater and rhetorician. So he was able to take on in formal debate some of these men from the synagogue that were not believers in Christ. The writer to the Hebrews is also obviously schooled in the oratory and debate and rhetoric. And he uses all these things to explain the gospel and the special assurance that we have that Jesus Christ is a great high priest through the course of this age. 
So I say they unsuccessfully debated with Stephen because according to Acts 6.10, quote, they were unable to stand up against the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. You can compare this with Luke 21.15 when Jesus said as the age between AD, AD 30 and AD 70, there will be a lot of persecution. And he said, but I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to successfully say anything against or even successfully resist. Stephen had that mouth and that wisdom, and he was irresistible. He couldn't be defeated. So, because they couldn't defeat him, and they also refused to join him, they couldn't beat him, and they refused to join him, so they lied about him. And they got false witnesses to bring charges against him. Sound familiar? They did the same with Jesus. They did the same with Paul. Bring false charges against him before the Sanhedrin. Stephen's famous defense before that council reached a crescendo with his stinging accusation of this very august council. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your forefathers did, so do you. You are always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your forefathers did, so do you. Acts 7.51 Now, you see a lot of sermons today, and I don't intend to be critical, but you see a lot of sermons today where there's a whole lot of volume and a whole lot of enthusiasm and a whole lot of polished, maybe, or unpolished delivery and a lot of oomph in it. And they say they're filled with the Holy Ghost, when in fact, if you listen to some of them, as I have recently... Some of these sermons are patent resistance of what the Holy Spirit says. So you can't go by the feeling or even the so-called delivery, although delivery is important, of course. You got to go by the content more than the delivery. On top of this, moments before his adversaries ground their teeth and came at him, there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's fulfilled right here by the opponents of the word. Gnashing of teeth. They came down on Stephen and stoned him to death. Moments before he died. Moments before they rushed upon him to stone him to death. You talk about religious fervor. Luke writes about Stephen that, quote, but he being full of the Holy Spirit looked intently into heaven. And you know what he said? I see Jesus. More exactly, 
he said, I see the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I see Jesus, he said. Then, Lord, don't lay this sin to their charge. Not only did he see Jesus, he expressed Jesus' forgiveness. And then he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. That's what I expect to happen when I die physically. I expect the Lord Jesus to receive my spirit. I expect that for you. Now, I've related all this to indicate that the pneumatology of Acts with regard to Greek-speaking Jewish Christian orator, Stephen, is similar to the pneumatology of Hebrews, written by a Jewish Greek-speaking Christian orator, especially in its warning aspect. There's a lot of warnings in Hebrews. And they're related to pneumatology oftentimes. For example, Hebrews 3 7, 4 7, 10 29. These, along with Matthew 22 43, where Jesus said David spoke in the Spirit, and 2 Samuel 23 2, where David said, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. These all together are strong testimonies as to just who the someone who solemnly testifies is in Hebrews 2.6. That being, ultimately, the Holy Spirit. So let's just do a translation of what we have from Hebrews 2.6 through 2.8a, which takes in the quotation. For you see, it is not to angels that God subjected the future world about which we are speaking. Now, somewhere, someone, the Holy Spirit via David, we know now what that is, somewhere, Psalm 8, specifically 4 through 6 or 5 through 7 in the Septuagint, that's the somewhere. The someone is the Holy Spirit via David. Solemnly testifies, saying, quote, what is man that you remember him? Or the son of man, that you are concerned for him. Now this word concerned for him means to visit him. What, who is the son of man that you visit him? And the Gingrich lexicon, we'll, we'll look at this down the road a little bit, not today. Means to visit him for the purpose of bringing salvation. Interesting. We also find this in Luke one sixty eight and Luke 7.16. The word that's used here. For in episcopeo means to visit with the purpose of bringing him salvation. So what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you concern, you're concerned for him? You made him inferior to what? Angels. There's angelology for a little while. You crowned him with glory and honor. And I think this next phrase, it's not in all translations, but I think it belongs here because it's a, verbatim translation of what you see in the Greek text of Psalm 8, 5 through 7. It says, you crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. Verse 8a closes the quote, you subjected 
all things under his feet. Notice under his feet kind of goes to and has a parallel in Psalm 110.1, 1091LXX, under his feet. Now today I only have time to look at the word dia marturomai. Dia marturomai, you'll see this in print, and that's translated to solemnly testify. Just want to look at a little bit at what this means and how it relates to our situation. The word is part of a semantic domain <clears throat> or a domain of words with the root martyr, M-A-R-T-U-R or M-A-R-T-Y-R, martyr, in the root word. This word is introductory of another theme in Hebrews, and that is of the Christian confession. That's homologia. One of the main goals of the PT in Hebrews is to urge his readers to, quote, hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, Hebrews 10.23. The temptation at that time And what will be the temptation in our own time and in our own near future, I think, and in the generation to follow, is to become ashamed of our confession of Jesus, or at least ashamed to publicly acknowledge the confession of Jesus as the Son of God and Lord, and to be ashamed to acknowledge our confession of faith. That which the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies, listen carefully, that which the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies becomes the confession which we should unashamedly acknowledge. As the danger in Hebrews 2.3 is drifting or drifting away, like a rowboat that somebody cut, cut the rope to, as it's moored to a dock. As the danger in Hebrews 2.3 is drifting, the danger in Hebrews 10.23 is wavering, vacillation, to become irresolute. We can be resolute, boldly confident, to confess our hope of the universal restoration in Jesus, for example, we who understand the apocatastasis, we can resolutely confess our hope of universal restoration in Jesus that he won at the cross because he who promised is faithful. That's Hebrews 10.23 also, the B part. The future world about which we're talking will come. It will come. And then the adversaries against it will be ashamed. Related words to this word, dia martyreo, include marturion, which appears in Hebrews 3.5. It means testimony. There the scripture says that, quote, Moses was faithful in all God's household as an attendant for a testimony, marturion to what would be said in the future. In other words, what God spoke in the prophet Moses was aimed at the greater truth that God would speak in a son. 
In Hebrews 7.17, the scripture says, quote, For it has been testified, marture, M-A-R-T-U-R-E-I, verb. It has been testified, quote, You are a priest through the age in the order of Melchizedek. Now there, the one who testified is God the Father. Psalm 110.4, LXX 109.4. What God testifies, we confess or acknowledge. Jesus is a priest through the age. Let's hold fast to that confession, for example. For it is the testimony of God about Jesus. Our confession is God's testimony. When we speak forth the gospel, for example, we are articulating the Father's testimony about his Son. Romans 1, 1 to 4. In Hebrews 4.14, it says Jesus the son of God is our great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Now, since he's all that and he is all that, the PT says, let us hold fast our confession. Since we have Jesus, the son of God, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, not just through the courts of the earthly tabernacle, but through the heavens into heaven itself to appear before us forever or through the age till we get there, till we're glorified. Then let's hold fast our confession unashamedly, unabashedly, and without fear. In Hebrews 3 1, 3 1, It says, therefore, set apart siblings, partakers of a heavenly calling. Keep focusing on the apostle and high priest of our confession, meaning whom we acknowledge publicly. This is about to become dramatically relevant in our time because ideological winds are blowing against this spirit-born testimony the ideologies that are gaining power have their origin in the prince of the power of the air says ephesians 2 2 and they're propagated by the sons of disobedience says ephesians 2 2 these ideologies with their doctrines and their tenets and their practices and their rituals have no tolerance for the confession of our faith. But we can boldly hold on to our confession and hold forth the word of life in the midst of a crooked and confused generation, says Philippians 2.15 and 16. Because, quote, he who promised is faithful. And he will never leave us nor forsake us. Our brothers and sisters 
in other parts of this world are being severely and cruelly persecuted. Whether it's Syria or China or many nations in between. Many of these have resisted renouncing their confession of faith and they've resisted unto blood, that is, unto death, their own death. Hebrews 12.4 As most Western Christians have not yet, you have not yet resisted to the point of blood, says Hebrews 12.4, to the readers of Hebrews in the first century and to some of us in the 21st century. The time is coming when we will have to be more serious than we have before about Jesus' words, don't fear those who kill the body. Matthew 10, 28. And these words, I will never leave you or forsake you. And so we can confidently confess the Lord himself is my backup, Boethos, helper, backup. I won't be afraid. What can man do to me? Best he can do to me is expedite my passage to future worlds. Psalm 118.6, in fact, Psalm 118.6, LXX 117.6 is where this came from in Hebrews 13.6. It's from a canonical psalm which is introduced in the Greek text with these words. Hallelujah. Acknowledge, ex homologeo, acknowledge the Lord, because he is benevolent, because his mercy endures forever. Amen.